Guten Tag und schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hello there and greetings from City Breaks. This is the first proper episode, so episode two of the City Breaks Munich series. One in which I'm going to start with Munich's number one tourist attraction, the Residenz, because it's a symbol of Bavarian history and Munich history since the 16th century. And uh, I'm going to use the episode to talk about a little bit about the history of the building, a bit more on some of the things to see there, and then finish with a section on the Wittelsbach dynasty itself. So, to the residence itself then, that enormous palace in the Altstadt, the old town of Munich, which was first begun in 1569. I saw a comment on a website somewhere saying, to get the hang of how big the place it is, compare the area it takes on a map with the area of, say, the Marienplatz in the, in the city centre, and you begin to realise that it's vast and sprawling. That's partly because it was built in the 16th century, but it was then added to by successive generations of the Wittelsbach family. They all wanted to make their mark on it. And it wasn't deemed to be finished, in inverted commas, until 1842. It was the political centre of Munich, it was the cultural centre, it was the place where the dukes and later the electors and finally the kings of Bavaria, they kept getting promoted, eventually they became kings, it was a place where they actually lived, it was a seat of government and it was really a centre for some of the artwork that they commissioned and for, for all those reasons that you might go and visit it today. Visiting it, as with many of these massive palaces, is quite a daunting prospect. There are about 130 rooms. I don't think they're quite all open to the public, but certainly most of them are. There are 10 different courtyards, so you're going to have to be a little bit selective. But you can certainly can say that the whole edifice reflects the splendour and the power of the Wittelsbach clan. By the way, as you look round, you might like to remember that it was in fact almost completely destroyed in World War II when Munich was heavily bombed. So what you're looking at is actually a post-war construction, but in that very efficient German way, it's a very well-done construction, reconstruction, and I don't think you're really aware of that as you look round. Talking of World War II, remember also that it had a particularly dark history during that period because parts of the palace became the Gestapo headquarters. The main part was housed in a 19th century building, which in fact was never rebuilt, but you are on the site at the place where Munich's Gestapo tortured people, interrogated their prisoners, and kept their incredibly detailed records. There were archives full of files of Nazi supporters denouncing their neighbours, or reports by the Gestapo's Spitzel, which is the German word for spies. If you've seen the film Sophie Scholl, which I'll be talking about in a future episode. She was the young student who was arrested and, in fact, executed by the Nazis. If you've seen the film, you will have seen the interrogation scenes that she went through. And it was, in fact, in this very building that those took place. OK, so that's a very brief idea of the history of the building. Let's think about what you might want to see when you actually get there. On the way in, the very first thing to notice is four giant bronze statues of lions sitting outside. And when you take a look at them, you'll soon realise that they've all got very shiny noses. And that's because the people of Munich think it brings good luck to stop and rub, rub a nose on your way in. If you stand back for a moment and watch, you'll see people doing exactly that. Even if they're not actually going into the palace, they just rub the nose on the way past. And in fact, there are some stalwarts who think that rubbing one nose isn't really enough and you need to rub all four. So if you stand there for a few minutes, you can amuse yourself by waiting to see whether that happens. 
then you have a problem because there's such a lot to see and you're probably realistically not going to troop around all the rooms and all the corridors. So I've picked out just a few things that I'm going to mention to give you some pointers. But of course, there's a leaflet and a map available. There is an audio tour. I think there's a short one and a longer one. So if you need a bit more help, bear that in mind. Okay, so one place you absolutely can't miss, shouldn't miss, is called the Cottonhof. Hof means yard, so a Cottonhof is a grotto courtyard, perhaps is a nicer term than yard. It was built in the 1580s. It was built for William V, who was the Duke of Bavaria at the time, and it was intended to be a summer palace for him. So along one side, there is indeed a grotto encrusted with seashells and crystals, um, to give a seaside flavour, I suppose. Well, the seashells anyway, not so sure about the crystals. And the thing that's pointed out in all the guidebooks about this Cottenhof is the fountain in the middle. It's called the Perseusbrunnen, so Perseus Fountain. And it's a big statue of Perseus holding Medusa's dripping head. He's just chopped it off and he's holding up the trophy. This area, the Cottenhof, was a favourite place for ballgoers to stroll through in in the 19th century balls particularly. If they'd had enough of dancing and eating, then they'd come out here to walk about and see and be seen and relax amongst tinkling fountains and marble lodges. The oldest surviving part of the residence is known as the Antiquarium, or Hall of Antiquities in the English guidebooks. It's 66 metres long and it's thought to be the largest Renaissance hall anywhere north of the Alps. Munich does tend to look south rather than north, perhaps, and it's got some more Renaissance influence than you'll find in the northern German cities. So this antiquarium was built in about 1570 and built, as the name would suggest, to display the antique collection of the current duke at the time, who was Albert V of Bavaria, all his statues and sculptures. It was used, in fact, before long as a banqueting hall, If you wanted people to come, you wanted to impress them by the wonderful food that you would have served, wine and dine your guests. But if they were doing that in surroundings where they also got a chance to look at and admire all the amazing artwork that you'd collected, then presumably you'd be even more impressed. And he had really a very full collection of sculptures. He had some Renaissance sculptures and he had classical antiques as well. But he made sure to give it a Bavarian flavour, and you'll still see today that the walls are decorated with images of Bavarian towns, marketplaces, other palaces. A third place I think you definitely don't want to miss is the Galerie, which means Ancestors Gallery. That's on the first floor. It's really a massively long corridor, and it's got over 120, I think it's 121 portraits of the Wittelsbach rulers. And of course, quite Germanic, if I'm allowed to say that, they're all displayed in chronological order. So if you've read anything about the Wittelsbach family and you want to see what some of the characters looked like, you can walk through that knowing that if you start at one end and work your way to the other, they're all given in date order. I would say that you most definitely don't want to miss the Thronensaal, which means throne room. Clearly, if that was going to be the room in which the king sat on the throne, it's going to be sumptuous and very impressive, and sure enough it is. I've got a nice description of it that comes from a book called The Mad King by Greg King. It's the story of Ludwig II. We'll certainly be coming back to him on numerous occasions. And one of his uh, eccentricities was his fondness for very lavish decoration. And the description in this book of the throne room 
as it was when Ludwig II was reigning. So here's a little extract. He, Greg King tells us that the room was, quote, decorated in blue watered silk and white stucco to reflect the national colours of the kingdom. Twelve tall gilded iron standards depicted the coat of arms of the Wittelsbach dynasty. They had been made from cannons seized from the Turks during the Battle of Navarino. So a nice mix of tasteful decoration with a little sprinkling of look how powerful we are and how well we've done in our battles. And from the same book comes this little description of one of the famous balls that Ludwig used to hold. He used to like to sit on his red throne in the throne room and have all the powerful and rich and beautiful come and pay him court and enjoy themselves. He'd put on lavish entertainment for them. And here's a little extract about that from the Mad King. So, quote, On nights when there were balls, seemingly endless lines of elegant courtiers and beautiful women paraded through the room, pausing to bow or drop a curtsy before Ludwig, seated on a red velvet dais. So those two descriptions date from the 1850s or 60s when Ludwig was on the throne. If you want to see some Bavarian bling, then I suggest you go to the Schatzkammer, which is, Schatz means treasure, so that's really the treasury of the palace. The very must-see thing there is the Bavarian crown, and the guidebooks also point you towards a little golden statue of St George, which apparently is something that Bill is very keen to see. My personal favourites from the list, though, were other things. I rather like the idea of the golden toothpicks and the ostrich egg cup, because surely all hell could break out if you put your ostrich egg in an ordinary egg cup. There was a crown, rather mysteriously labelled crown of an English queen, without actually telling us which one. And there was a a, a thing labelled drinking game, Diana with stag, which is a statue of Diana, all in gold, of course, uh, on a horse, presumably out hunting, rising out of a bowl, which presumably you filled with drink and... Um, competed with your neighbours to see who could drink it first or something. I don't know. Anyway, the whole room is full of gold and silver and all the precious thrones you can think of, crystal, amber, coral, lapis lazuli, uh, a sumptuous feast all in all. So then you might like to visit the Nibelungsäle, which would translate into English as the Nibelung Halls, Nibelung being an epic German poem from medieval times. And in this room there are five halls of wall paintings illustrating said epic poem. It's one of those tales of a young man who sets out to woo a girl. Um, They've all got wonderful German names, so the hero, our hero, is called Siegfried, and the lady that he would like to, whose hand he would like to acquire is the Burgundian princess known as Kriemhild. Obviously her brother has to give permission, King Gunther, and an arrangement is made. Gunther's got his eye on Brunhild, so it's decided that if Siegfried can help him acquire Brunhild as his wife, then he will give permission for Siegfried to marry Kriemhild. And all of this duly happens, and there's a wedding, and you'd think that's a lovely happy ending, but that's only part one. Part two turns much more tragic. I won't spoil it for you by giving you all the details, but it's very much a part of German culture. It was well known in medieval times, then it got forgotten for two or three hundred years, but when it was found again, it was seen as a German national epic. In fact, this took rather a sombre turn during World War Two because it was used in National Socialist propaganda when they were trying to promote the idea of Germany and all things German. So that's taken the edge off its shine a little bit. And it's also well known because Richard Wagner set one of his opera cycles around the story. It was called Der Ring des Nibelungen in German, so the Nibelung Ring in English. And if you have energy for more treasures, you could go to the Reiche Zimmer, which means rich rooms, 
which is described thus in the Lonely Planet Guide. I rather like their description. It calls it a, quote, six-room extravaganza of exuberant rococo carried out by the top stucco and fresco artists of the day. Definitely a highlight. So there you go. If you fancy some exuberant rococo, then the Reichezimmer, the rich rooms, is the place to find it. And although there's much, much, much more to see, I'm just going to mention one more place, which perhaps you shouldn't really miss because it's very well known. And that's a building which is part of the residence complex called the Cuvillier Theatre. Cuvillier was a French architect, the one who designed it, in fact. And this also is a Rococo in style, and it's deemed to be one of Europe's finest Rococo theatres. It's a theatre and opera house. It was commissioned by Maximilian III Joseph, who was Elector of Bavaria in the 18th century. It was built, we think, in the 1770s. And it's got four tiers of loggia to sit in, described again in The Lonely Planet as being, quote, dripping with Rococo embellishment. And it has an interesting history because during World War Two, it was very much feared that it wouldn't survive. So what they did was they dismantled it and they took out all the interior fittings, all the lodges, stored them safely. And then after the war, in 1958, in fact, the theatre was rebuilt. So the actual building is a reconstruction. But what you're looking at inside are the original fittings. And the whole thing was moved to a new location in the residence in the Fountain Court there. So that's where you can visit it. It was the theatre, of course, that belonged to the residents, which the kings would use to entertain their guests and in which many, many, many very well-known German productions were held. It's well-known not least because it hosted the actual premiere of one of Mozart's operas, the Idomeneo, which was first performed on January the 29th in 1781 in the Cuvillier Theatre. I noticed when I was flicking through one of those thousand things you must do before you die books, this one was a thousand buildings you really must see. The Cuvillier Theatre is actually listed in it, so it was deemed by the authors to be one of the top thousand buildings on the entire planet. So I mention that as a recommendation, but I do recommend that you have a look because it is a beautiful little jewel of a theatre. And there's a bit of politics lurking there as well, because I read in one of the guidebooks that the fact that it was built in four tiers of seating was actually quite meaningful, because each tier recognised one part of the hierarchy of society. Of course, we're only talking about the top end of society anyway, who was allowed in at all. But even within that, there was a very strict hierarchy. So when you look at the lodge in the centre of the theatre, that, of course, was for the king's And then the remaining three tiers were in descending order for the high aristocracy, the civil service, and lastly, the lesser urban nobility. So if you didn't get even into the lesser urban nobility category, presumably you weren't welcome at all. Okay, so that rounds up my summary of some of the things that you might want to actually visit in the residence. And I'd like to devote the rest of the episode to talking through a little bit the outlines of the Wittelsbach dynasty, this family who ruled Bavaria for centuries and who built this palace. They actually ruled Bavaria from 1180 right up until 1918, mostly based in Munich and under various titles, as I think I mentioned, Duke, Elector and eventually from 1806 onwards, the rulers of Bavaria were known as the King. 
Modern Munich has been most influenced really from that date onwards, 1806. So I'm going to forget all the earlier Wittelsbachs and just do a very quick potted biography of everybody from Maximilian Joseph I onwards. He it was who was in power in 1806 when, thanks to some Napoleonic reshuffle, power was taken from people, given to others. Bavaria did quite well and Bavaria was declared to be a kingdom. So although he'd been an elector to that point, Maximilian Joseph I became the first king of Bavaria from 1806 onwards. He was quite a peaceful man. There'd been lots of wars before his reign. He decided he didn't want so much more of that and he was much more into promoting the arts. He it was in fact who commissioned the Cuvillier Theatre that we were just talking about. He also founded the Bavarian Academy of Sciences, he introduced compulsory schooling, he reformed the legal system, so he was very much about trying to make life better and more cultural for his subjects. He'd begun reforming the legal system before he was made king, that was in 1806. In 1808, Bavaria had its, got its first constitution and Bavaria's first parliament met in 1818. So that was all under the watch of Maximilian Joseph I. He died in 1825 and was succeeded by his son, Ludwig I. Now, we're coming back to Ludwig I in the next episode because there's quite a lot of juicy scandal and stories to tell about him. So just briefly here then, he made Munich very much the cultural capital of Germany. He founded, for example, the art gallery, the Alta Pinacothek, and lots of painters and poets and philosophers made their home in Munich and did their work there under him because he encouraged them. And while he was on the throne, Munich was sometimes known as Athens on the Isar. So the Isar, of course, being the river. And they're saying with that, look, we've got just as much culture as they have in, in the Greek capital. He built the Glyptothek. He built the Ludwigstrasse, so one of the main streets, very imposing. It's got its triumphal arch at one end, of course, the Siegestor. That means victory arch, victory tower. And he founded Ludwig Maximilian University all of which makes him sound not that different from his father and predecessor. But actually, the big difference was that he was very much at the heart of lots of scandal as well. He was, for example, very fond of the ladies. He had a Schönheitsgalerie set up in his summer residence, the Nymphenburg Palace, which was basically a gallery of portraits of his mistresses. And he had one mistress in particular who got him into real trouble, and that was the infamous Lola Montez best described perhaps as a high-quality con girl, somebody who charmed all sorts of very important men, including, for example, the author Alexandre Dumas and Franz Liszt, and even the Tsar of Russia, with whom she was said to have had some private audiences. Who was she? Well, really, a dancer who couldn't actually dance all that well, but certainly had the knack of making men fall at her feet and do what she liked. The full story is coming in the episode on Ludwig I, but for the moment, suffice to say that she was the very last straw, she was the ruination of his reputation, and she was the final reason why, in the end, in 1848, he had to abdicate. He was succeeded by his son, Maximilian II, who ruled from 1848 to 1864, and who, I think, may have decided he'd go for a rather quieter life than his father had had. He was very influenced by the Enlightenment, and his reign was one in which quite a lot of reforms were introduced. For example, press censorship was relaxed, the right to assemble, to hold public meetings was introduced, 
and he founded a new university, Munich's Technische Universität. He also built the magnificent Maximilianstrasse, that lovely wide avenue that runs past the residence, named, of course, after himself. After Maximilian, in 1864, came Ludwig II, possibly the most colourful of all the Wittelsbachs, quite a sad man, really, in a way, mentally fragile and yet flamboyant at the same time. Again, I'm going to give Ludwig II an episode to himself, so much more about him later, but for the moment, suffice to say that he was the one who built the fairy tale castles scattered around Bavaria, places like Neuschwanstein and Linderhof. Another thing for which he's much remembered is his Wagner obsession and the fact that he loved the romantic. He liked, for example, of a midnight or a 2am to set off in a horse-drawn sleigh and go on a fast and furious ride through the forests. In the end, his fragile mental state was too much for his ministers and in the end he was persuaded, perhaps you can hear the quotation marks around that word, to abdicate in 1866. He was succeeded in the first instance by his brother Otto, who also was mentally quite unstable and was in the end also ruled unfit to rule. And the solution that was found was to go to their uncle, um, the Prince Luitpold, who ruled as Prince Regent, so ruled alongside Otto, but really was the seat of power, the person making the decisions. His reign, which actually lasted until 1912, is well known for the fact that he presided over a cultural flourishing in the city, when Munich became a centre of culture really to rival Paris. In 1900, for example, there were about 30,000 people living in the city working in the arts, and Munich was a place to which many of the writers and artists of the day came. Again, there'll be lots more of this in a subsequent episode, but for the moment we could mention artists like Vasily Kandinsky, who settled in Munich from Russia, and the German painter Paul Klee. It was also home to Thomas Mann and to Henrik Ibsen. And this golden period lasted really until 1914, when of course everything changed because of the beginning of World War I. In 1912, Luitpold died, and he was really had been held in very high regard by the people of Munich. So on his 90th birthday, they decided to celebrate his life and thank him by planting a grove of 90 lime trees in a park which was renamed Luitpold Park. And there too, there was set up an obelisk with an inscription on it, which read as follows. This column and grove of 90 lime trees are to commemorate the gratitude felt by the city of Munich on the 12th of March 1911, the 90th year in the life of His Royal Highness, the Prince Regent Luitpold of Bavaria, then in the 25th year of his reign. Luitpold was succeeded then in 1912 by what turned out to be the very last Wittelsbach king, that, namely Ludwig III. I think the people of Munich knew as early as 1912, on the death of Luitpold, that this really was the end of an era, and sure enough, two years later came the onset of World War I, with all the trouble and deprivation that that brought to Munich, the fact, for example, that many of the citizens practically starved to death, and in 1918 then began another new and much more terrifying era, with the beginnings of the rise of Hitler and the abdication of Ludwig III. The Wittelsbach had been the Bavarian rulers for 750 years, but this really was the end. A whole new era was beginning. So then, that serves, I hope, as an introductory roundup of their dynasty, something that you can keep in mind as we refer back to them in future episodes. 
So just before I sign out, um, let me tell you that in the next episode, I propose to carry on indeed with the Wittelsbachs to talk about their summer residence, the Nymphenburg Palace, and to go into more detail about Ludwig I, who's very much associated with that building. Following that, there'll be an episode on Ludwig II, a lot more about his flamboyance, his quirky ways, and his rather sad demise, connected to some places just outside Munich, which you can visit. A 20-minute train ride out of Munich will take you to Lake Starnberg, the Starnberger See, and the little town of Starnberg. And it's around that lake that Ludwig spent much of his time, and also where he met his death and where the memorial to him can be found. So all of that to come in episode four. And I think I'll probably follow that with episode five on his fairy tale castles, which are a little bit further out of Munich, scattered around Bavaria, but very much a memorial to him. So all of that to come. But I hope for today that you've enjoyed your introduction to what is actually the number one tourist attraction in Munich, namely the residence, and to the family about whom we'll be hearing so much more in episodes to come, the Wittelsbachs. So for the moment, it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening. Vielen Dank and to wish you goodbye in a very German way by saying Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>